0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And those of you who follow our shows here at 1001 Stories Network know I enjoy good boxing stories, and so do our listeners. I can think of three that have done real well for us in terms of numbers the story of Jack Dempsey, right here at 1001 Heroes, and two of Jack London's fight stories one called A Piece of Steak, and the other called The Mexican which are both in our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today we're taking a trip back into American history. This time we have two tickets for you to ringside on July 4th, 1910, in Reno, Nevada, for what was billed then as the fight of the century. And to many of the people who follow the sport of boxing and its history, it was and still is one of the most promoted, most talked about, and most explosive fights in boxing history. It's much more than a boxing story. It's a story of a young America in which blacks were trying to gain a foothold and win respect and maybe score some payback as well for the way they had been and were being treated. And now they had a hero, and his name was Jack Johnson. Was it racial rivalry? Sure it was, and it was big. The newspapers ate it up, and the coming fight was the subject of every conversation from the neighborhood saloon to the Sunday preacher's podium. Big Jack Johnson had beaten Tommy Burns for the World Heavyweight Professional Boxing Championship in Sydney, Australia on December 26, 1908, becoming the first black man to hold a title. To say this was important to blacks would be a huge understatement. This was huge, and it was talked about, and it was controversial to them as it was to the average white guy because of the kind of man Jack Johnson was. He was a former drifter who had seen the inside of countless jails. He had learned to fight in the bars and back streets of some of the toughest towns in America. By the time 1910 rolled around, he was a known international figure in cafe society. He was frequently seen drunk, owned flashy racing cars, which were always getting pulled over and ticketed for speeding, and made no secret of his liking of blonde white women who were known to travel with boxers, jockeys, and known criminals, and many were known prostitutes. After Johnson defeated Tommy Burns, The well-known author and boxing promoter Jack London, writing on the fight for the New York Herald, ended his story with an appeal to recently retired boxer James L. Jeffries, who had retired undefeated in 1905, to emerge from his alfalfa farm and remove the smile from Jack Johnson's face, saying, Jeff, it's up to you. Now, for those of you who know Jack London, he was not a racist. He lived with and judged men solely by their ability to stand up to life's challenges, And most boxers, from all I've read about them, do not fight for their race. They fight to win, and they respect each other's abilities and feel a kinship with each other based upon their knowledge and experience in the ring. It has nothing to do with the shade of their skin. They may want to destroy each other in the ring, but that's the game, and that's what they get paid for. But Jack Johnson was an in-your-face black fighter, which drove white fans nuts. After he won the title in 1908, Every fighter that came against him was billed as the great white hope. Big burly Al Kaufman, a German-American boxer who could punch hard, fought Johnson on the 9th of September, 1909, at San Francisco's Mission Street Arena, a fight that went the distance, on that one, ten rounds, but in which Kaufman only landed two good punches. Then there was Victor McLaughlin, a Londoner who began fighting in Manitoba, Canada at age 19, earning a reputation as a tough guy. And then fought Jack Johnson in a six-round exhibition bout at the Vancouver Athletic Club in March of 1909. This was Johnson's first fight after beating Tommy Burns, and he easily beat McLaughlin. McLaughlin then toured with the circus, which offered $25 to anyone who could go three rounds with him. After that, he joined the British forces and fought in World War I with the Irish Fusiliers. After the war, he got back into boxing, where a film promoter discovered him and started him on a film career. He enjoyed playing Irish drunks, and he was good at it. And he got a film contract with Fox Studios, where John Ford made him a star. And McLaughlin ended up in seven John Wayne films. If you've ever seen The Quiet Man, which is one of the Duke's best films, you'll see McLaughlin fighting the Duke in a long fight scene, where McLaughlin does pretty well for a guy in his 60s when that was filmed. You will also recognize McLaughlin as a cavalry sergeant in Fort Apache, Rio Grande, and She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. If you never saw those movies, it's about time you did, and now you have a good excuse. Very capable boxers, including Tony Ross, Billy Delaney, and Philadelphia Jack O'Brien, went down under Johnson's fist, and pretty soon there was only one guy left that people thought could cut Jack Johnson down to size, and that was Jim Jeffries. Jeffries became the subject of every barroom conversation, and attention started focusing on him like the sun's rays through a magnifying glass. Who was Jim Jeffries and what kind of fighter was he? He had grown up hard, entering the trades as a boiler maker as a boy, and turning to the ring when someone convinced him he would make a good fighter. In 1899, after only 12 professional fights, he won the World's Heavyweight Championship by knocking out Bob Fitzsimmons. He earned the nickname the Boilermaker due to his early work in the trades, and his punches, especially his left hook, were so hard that the term maker" was given to hard punches. And you'll run into that phrase even today. Now you know where it came from. He was known for tremendous strength and stamina. He would fight out of a crouch with his left arm extended forward, and he could absorb tremendous punishment while wearing his opponents out. He stood six foot one and a half and weighed 225 in his prime. By the time Jeffries retired six years later, in 1905, he had never been knocked off his feet. Upon retiring, He refereed a bout between Marvin Hart and Tommy Burns, and Burns won his title back. Jeffries retired to the farm and lived a quiet life, or so he thought. He didn't work out, and his weight mushroomed to 300 pounds, but he didn't lose his strength, and he could still break any man's grip with either hand. Stories began to be made up about him as interest grew, and soon legend was building him up to be a folk hero. For instance, the story came out that he cured himself of pneumonia by drinking a case of whiskey in two days. Rumors began to fly that he was going to kill Jack Johnson. Letters started appearing by the dozens at Jeffrey's Farm, then by the hundreds, asking him when he was going to fight Johnson. It's up to you, Jack, they were saying. But Jack was cautious, knowing that he was past his prime and way out of shape. By early 1909, however, he decided to look into the business assets of a fight with Jack Johnson, and he chose a San Francisco hatter named Sam Berger as his personal manager sending him to talk to Johnson's representatives. Finally, the prospects looked pretty good, and Jeffries made a private agreement with Johnson to fight, with just a few caveats attached, the most important of which was Jeffries being able to get his weight down to 227 without sacrificing his health. For that, he needed time. His next stop was the weight-reducing farm and mineral baths at Carlsbad in northwest Bohemia in present-day Czechoslovakia. It took money to go there, Carlsbad was a place that attracted royalty, and it just so happened that King Edward VII of England was a frequent patron, finding the waters helpful, as well as the company of ladies in the spa's luxury hotels. On his first day in town, Jeffreys ran into the king on his daily walk, and the king recognized Jeffreys immediately from his pictures in the papers, so he grabbed his arm and asked him when he was going to fight Johnson. It was obvious to Jeffreys now that this wasn't going to be just a local match. Later that day, his doctors told Jeffrey that he could safely reduce his weight to 227 in one year. So now he had a date to work with. All they needed now was a good promoter and financier. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox, I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie, and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now, back to our story. Back in the States, Johnson continued to gain attention with his custom suits, his handmade shoes, his racing cars, and his women, who were always white, blonde, and clingy. They were hookers for the most part, and his actions while with them stirred up a hornet's nest of controversy in every corner. Conservative blacks as well as whites were aggravated by the racial mix on display. Reformers used him as the target of their reform, going after drinking gambling, prostitution, you name it, Johnson was doing it. Even the pimps, whores, distillers, and bar owners were getting upset with him for causing attention to fall their way. Johnson's favorite companion was a prostitute named Belle Schreiber, who kept with him a part of the time, while the rest of the time was spent with Etta Terry Duryea, whom he married on January eighteenth, 1911. But that didn't prevent him from being seen with others, and he and the women were hard to miss. Jeffries found his promoter in Tex Rickard, a fight promoter who had become well-known in Alaska during the gold rush. Rickard set up a meeting between the two camps in Hoboken, New Jersey, and the fight of the century, set for July 4, 1910, was on the books. Each fighter received $10,000 at the signing table, and it was agreed that the winner would receive 60% of the prize money, the loser 40%. Oh, and no pressure on Jeffreys. No siree. One paper read, The hopes of the white race would be carried on the worthy shoulders of Jim Jeffries, undefeated champion of champions. Jeffries returned to California to a strict training schedule under the tutelage of gentleman Jim Corbett and the famous wrestler Farmer Burns, while the newspaper reporters filled print with stories about the increasing strength in his arms and legs and his aggressive disposition. Johnson, on the other hand, set out on a tour of European music halls, actually performing an act himself which involved a few songs, a dance routine, and his playing of his bull fiddle, on which he was pretty good. Etta went with him on this trip, along with a full cadre of managers, valets, and secretaries, and Etta performed with Johnson on his act. They spent Christmas of 1909 in London, living large. Finally, Johnson decided to return to the States for some training, and managed to get photographed getting a speeding ticket at 12th Street and Michigan Avenue in Chicago some crafty newspaper artist managed to put words next to Johnson's mouth, saying, Stand back, Mr. Police Officer, and let them colored peoples have a look at me. By today's standards, this would be seen as blatant racism. It was seen that way, too, but few people cared, except educated blacks, who saw no benefit at all in making this a racial issue. The Reverend Rebert C. Ransom of Bethel African Methodist Church in New York City said, no responsible colored minister in the U.S. is interested in the pugilistic contest between Johnson and Jeffries from the standpoint of race. We do not think that Jack Johnson thinks of or has ever thought of holding the championship for the black race. Johnson is not trying to win the Negro championship, but to hold and defend his title against all comers regardless of race or color. But not surprisingly, Plenty of black people were proud of Johnson as a fighter and wanted him to win because he was black. The Chicago Defender newspaper had no problems with shouting this theme, saying, Hell yes, this is racial. That newspaper's editor, Robert Sengstack Abbott, was as sensationalist as it comes. He was making millions in the months and weeks before the fight, and he was enjoying the comforts of his Chicago mansion. His paper featured one cartoon that showed the ref with the face of Satan, bearded and dressed as Uncle Sam, and labeled as public sentiment. Standing beside Jeffreys were three menacing figures labeled Race, Prejudice, and Negro Persecution. The legend above the cartoon read in caps, He will have them all to beat. Media was making a fortune off playing the races against each other, just as much in 1910 as they are today. The only difference being that today most whites have been working for decades to heal the racial divide, while most of the media still profits from attacking them by selectively magnifying random acts of white on black police violence, or for suggesting that racial inequality is everywhere and nothing's been done about it. Beneath it all, it's still the newspapers and news media profiting by positioning one race against the other. On June 15th, less than three weeks before the fight, the governor of California put the K-boss on plans to hold the bout in San Francisco. It seems a congressman had called the San Francisco Board of Commerce with the idea that the fight would somehow have a negative effect upon their ability to secure the Panama Pacific Exposition in 1915. It looks as though the bringing of 15 to 20,000 visitors into the city, some of whom might riot after the fight was over, would cause a blemish to San Francisco's reputation. So they ordered Rickard out. But Mayor McCarthy of San Francisco didn't want to lose all that tourist money. He said he wasn't taking orders from the governor. But Rickard was spooked now. He didn't want to have to shut down the day of the fight. And he called Governor Denver Dickerson of Nevada and asked if he could have the fight there in Reno. Dickerson had only one qualm. He had heard the fight might be rigged. But Rickard assured him it was not and told him what the split was and the agreement. Johnson's retinue camped out at the Willows, a roadhouse four miles outside of Reno, where Johnson sparred with past contenders. It was during one of those workouts that Governor Dickerson, wearing a wide Panama hat, visited, watching as Johnson sparred with a fighter named George Cotton. Cotton managed to put a cut on Johnson's lip, angering him, and Johnson lashed out with a return that was so rapid that the governor didn't see the punch. He did see Cotton fade to his knees and saw Johnson's manager Sig Hart throw a bucket of cold water on Cotton's face to bring him back to full consciousness. "'What happened to him in there?' Dickerson asked a reporter. The reporter answered, Dickerson hit him on the jaw and almost put him out. "'Put him out of where?' Dickerson asked. "'Quit your kidding, Governor,' said the reporter. "'You know what I meant. He was nearly knocked out.' "'Oh, I see,' said Dickerson. "'Did you ever see a fight before?' said the reporter. "'Yeah, lots of 'em," said the governor, "'but not like this. "'The others were with guns, where men sank to their death. "'In this affair, no one seems to suffer much hurt.' After the practice, during which Dickerson watched Jack Johnson carefully, he gathered the reporters together saying, I've never seen a man standing who can whip Jack Johnson today and I'm forced to bet on him. Dickerson also said that Nevada was proud to host the fight and he wouldn't stand for any racism from his people. The fight and the controversy over the fight was used as a political tool to remove Dickerson in his next election. But years later, in 1920, when Jack Johnson was sent to Leavenworth prison for one year on upsubstantiated charges, Dickerson worked to get him paroled, and did. In the days preceding the fight, the journalists flooded in, and one of them was the then-famous author Jack London, who arrived in the company of two hobo pals who went by the names of Water Tank Willie and Seattle Sam. London's face was swollen with bruises he had picked up from a fight with a bartender in Ogden, Utah. And other types were filing in as well. Johnson's camp was fully armed. Johnson kept one pistol with him at all times outside of the practice ring and had an armed guard named Cal McVeigh, a former National League baseball catcher, outside his window at night. Johnson was concerned about a possible robbery. The local papers were filled with rumors that the fight was fixed and there were stories about some of the best thieves in the West coming to Reno to enjoy the fight and the good pickings. The well-known bank robber Cincinnati Slim was already there, and the train robber Sundance Kid was rumored to be on his way. Juan Lin, the hatchet man for the New York branch of the Sing Tan, was walking the streets of Reno, and rumor out there said he'd killed 30 men. Jack had a lot of money, and jewelry on hand, as well as his girlfriend, who liked to show off all that stuff, so he had to be cautious. Henry Wales, who later became the editor of the Chicago Tribune, later wrote of the Reno fight, that no event in modern times had so permeated the mind of the world since Charles Lindbergh's flight from Long Island to Paris 17 years ago. And no event ever had attracted so many reporters. By his count, more than 300 reporters were working there by the end of June. The boxing enthusiasts and adventure seekers flooded in by rail and car, but there wasn't a spare sleeping or tent space left in Reno the last week before the fight. People were sleeping in their vehicles, on the floors of saloons and gambling houses, and these were open all night. Indians, cowboys, Mexicans, and miners were seen on the streets, and pickpockets were everywhere, often working in pairs. Governor Dickerson did his best to scare them out and ordered anyone caught to be jailed. He also deputized citizens to protect drunks from lush rollers, those who would jump on drunks and rob them. He brought in Captain Cox of the Arizona Rangers, and Cox was a legend. The bad men knew him on sight, He wore two guns and could draw and fire them with deadly accuracy. Johnson played up his blackness for the reporters. Anything he could do to increase the animosity was reported. He played his fiddle and clowned with the reporters using chicken-stealing humor, pointing to his gold-capped teeth and saying stuff like, Chicken see the gleam in my eye and stay out of my way. Chicken and corn fritters are affinities. They are meant for each other, and both are meant for me." Anyone who wasn't watching his actual strict diet and his workouts would have thought he wasn't taking this fight seriously, but those in the know knew he was just toying with the reporters. Those in the know were betting on Johnson. Three days before the fight, each man wrote his manifesto, their statement as to how they would conduct themselves during the fight. Jeffries wrote, When the gloves are knotted on my hands and I stand ready to defend what is really my title, it will be at the request of the public which forced me out of retirement. I realize full well just what depends on me, and I'm not going to disappoint the public. That portion of the white race that has been looking to me to defend its athletic superiority may feel assured that I am fit to do my very best. If Johnson defeats me, I will shake his hand and declare him the greatest fighter the sporting world has ever known. And Johnson wrote, Every fighter on the eve of a fight declares that he hopes the best man wins. I am quite sincere when I say that I do. And if Mr. Jeffries knocks me out or wins a decision over me, I will go into his corner and congratulate him as soon as I am able. My congratulations will not be fake. I will mean it. Let me say in conclusion that I believe the meeting between Mr. Jeffries and myself will be a test of strength, skill, and endurance. I plan to gradually beat him down and finally make him take the count. However, should I meet defeat, I will have no excuse to offer and will proclaim Mr. Jeffries king of them all. It was 1.30 in the afternoon of July 4th, 1910, in Reno, Nevada, at Ringside. Patches of white could be seen on the surrounding mountaintops, but those were the only cool things in sight. The desert heat was sweltering. Tex Rickard had built special seats for divorced women, as no decent married women would attend an event like this in 1910, and those seats were full. 20,000 spectators were crowded into the stands and surrounding turf all their eyes fixed on the little roped-in square in the center. The betting was going ten to six on Jeffries, and the talk was, as one reporter put it, one thousand to one on Jeffries. Uncle Billy Jordan called the rigged celebrities in the audience up for a bow, and boxing legends John Sullivan, the Boston strong boy, James J. Gentleman Jim Corbett, the only man who had ever defeated Sullivan, former heavyweight champ Tommy Burns, Bob Fitzsimmons, the lightest man at 165 pounds to ever win a heavyweight championship, Sailor Tom Sharkey, Battling Johnny Nelson, and A. Battelle all accepted the applause. Then Tex Rickard stepped in to start the fight. Forty-five rounds, if it ever got that far, for the heavyweight championship of the world. Rickard signaled for the opening gong. Jeffries advanced from his corner, and Johnson, his feet constantly moving, shuffled out to meet him. Jeffries quickly took the fight to Johnson, using his crouch and extended left. Johnson's face was impassive, and his entire body showed very little movement that wasn't necessary, saving every ounce of strength for the fight ahead. Jeffries was the one who was rushing and swinging, using energy early, but the first round was spent just sizing each other up for the most part. The second round was nearly a copy of the first, except that Jeffries was using that quick left to try and tag Johnson, but he wasn't hitting the mark. In the third round, Johnson came out quick and caught Jeffreys with a left jab that brought the crouching Jeffreys up straight, as though he'd run into a wall. And then he started talking to Jeffreys, getting into his head. He was taunting him, saying, "'Come on, Mr. Jeff. Let's see what you got. Do something, man. This is for the championship.' The audience was puzzled. Johnson was not. He was careful, but he knew he had this fight in the bag. Jeffreys was trying to steady himself from that jab in round three— and four. In the fourth round, Johnson took the offensive, keeping his left jab flickering in Jeffrey's face. I could go like this all afternoon, Mr. Jeff, he taunted, and he did. In the seventh round, Johnson came out of his corner so fast that Jeffrey's hands weren't even in position yet before Johnson landed a hard right cross to Jeffrey's jaw. From that point on, anyone who knew boxing could see that Jeffrey's had no chance to win the fight. Jeffreys began to box wildly, visibly slowing down, but staying on his feet until the gong, after which he collapsed on his chair, his right eye swollen and closing, his face badly marked and swollen. Jeffries stayed alive in the sixth and did his best to take the fight to Johnson in the ninth, but all he could hit was elbows and air. Rather than knocking him out, Johnson was just wearing Jeffries down, which is what he said he was going to do. It was a humane choice, because it at least allowed Jeffries to show his grit. But it was also a wise choice, because had he knocked out Jeffries, the first thing the critics would say is that Jeffries took a dive. Johnson wanted no doubt as to who the legitimate winner was. In the 15th, Johnson knocked Jeffries out of the ring, and Jeffries fans pushed him back in. Jeffries couldn't even lift his arms at that point. Johnson chopped him down with a left to the head, but Jeffries got up, taking three hard blows to the face. Sam Berger, Jeffreys' ring manager threw in the white towel, but Rickard didn't see it, and counted ten over the down Jeffreys. Then Rickard lifted Johnson's gloved hand, and the fight was over. Seconds later, telegraph wires were humming, and celebrations began breaking out in black neighborhoods in Chicago, New York, Ohio, Mississippi, Missouri, Georgia, Virginia, and Arkansas. It began innocently enough, but as the liquor poured and the darkness rolled over the eastern cities, the frolic turned into rioting. And the rioting into war in some places. A gun battle broke out in Uvalde, Georgia, leaving three blacks dead and scores of blacks and whites wounded. In New York City, the Irish fought the blacks and blacks fought the Irish. There was rioting in Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Wilmington, and Norfolk, resulting in many injuries and hundreds of arrests. The entire town of Keystone, West Virginia, was in control of a black mob until late in the afternoon of July 5th. Make no mistake, Both sides were at fault. However, the black race in America had been downgraded and left without much opportunity, having no way to act out their resentments. Their pride in Jack Johnson's win, coupled with that deep resentment, no doubt fueled a good part of what went on, as well as the resentment felt by whites that a white man had been beaten by a black man for the heavyweight championship. All told, at least as far as the count went that was total, two white persons and nine blacks were killed in the riots, and two of those black people by other blacks. The details aren't available. After the fight, Johnson was led back to the Willows unmolested, where he donned a blue silk suit and a crimson tie. Etta, who had watched the fight, put on a fresh dress, and they went for a car ride downtown in an open touring car. Johnson appeared to be in no danger in Reno. The crowd was mostly apathetic. The fight was over. A number of people on the street did come up to his car and congratulated him on the fight. Jim Jeffries headed back for San Francisco in the company of his wife, Berger, Jim Corbett, Farmer Burns, and a few reporters. He didn't drink, and when questioned, told reporters, "I couldn't have beaten him on my best day." Jeffries retired permanently this time and lived to a prosperous old age. Jack Johnson's life was not so simple. In September of 1913, his wife Eda shot herself at a Chicago cabaret. She hadn't been in her grave three months when he married another white girl, Lucille Cameron. The following spring, Johnson was convicted for violating the Mann Act, which, by definition, is the transporting of a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. He was caught largely on the testimony of his old girlfriend, Belle Schreiber. He had no choice but to flee the country. Two years later, on April 5, 1915, Jack lost his title in Havana, where he was sent to the floor after 26 rounds with giant Jess Willard. In 1920, Johnson gave up his freedom by surrendering himself to U.S. authorities, and he was originally sent to Leavenworth with a one-year sentence, but he was paroled early. For the remainder of his life, he made an unspectacular living from side shows and occasional boxing exhibitions, fighting his last one at age 68. And that April of 1945, he died in an automobile accident driving one of his fast cars, In that same year, 1945, the great black boxer Joe Lewis held the heavyweight title. At the funeral for Jack in Chicago, a black minister delivered an epitaph for Jack that read, Jack struck a double blow when he became champion. If we hadn't had a Jack, we wouldn't have a Joe now, intimating, of course, that Jack Johnson had paved the way for Joe Lewis and others to come. And Jack Johnson had paved the way for other black men to excel in boxing and to be accepted in other sports, such as baseball. It took years, and you could say the change was much too slow in coming. But come it did. And that wraps up our story of the Great White Hope for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. If you enjoy 1001 Heroes, please do stop and send us a review. We appreciate reviews very much, and it helps new listeners find us. Also, give us a look at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Our Patreon supporters do a lot to help this show move forward as we move now toward 2001 stories. And we still get emails asking us if there's one place people can go to listen to all of our podcasts in one place, and there actually is. It's our host website at 1001storiespodcast.com. That's 1001storiespodcast.com. And all of our archives going all the way back to 2015 are easy to get to on there. That's 1001storiespodcast.com. It's a great way to listen, and you get a wide choice of episodes and shows. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new story here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Until then, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.